Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Helena Hoff about her new book, The EU Migrant Generation in Asia, Middle Class Aspirations in Asian Global Cities, which was published by Bristol University Press in 2022. Dr. Hoff is Senior Research Fellow and Lecturer in Japanese Studies at the Institute of Asian and Oriental Studies at the University of Zurich. She is also affiliated as a researcher with the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Religious and Ethnic Diversity. So thank you for joining the podcast today, Helena. Thank you so much, Shatranjay. It's great to talk to you today. Um, so our first question is always biographical. So I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become a scholar of Japanese studies and migration studies? Yes, thank you for this question. I grew up in Nuremberg, which is in the south of Germany. And after graduation from high school, I spent a year on a working holiday in New Zealand. And this actually turned out to be a trigger event for me. I met a lot of people from Asia who either lived or worked in New Zealand, and I befriended quite a few young Japanese people who spent a similar gap year, if you want to say, call it like that, as I did on this island. And these people were basically living the story of those who are often labeled lifestyle migrants. At the same time, I also worked in factories and on vineyards, which was exhausting and poorly paid work. So my fellows were seasonal migrants from surrounding Pacific Islands and the indigenous people of New Zealand, the Maori, and I became friends with a few. The contrast in the daily lives of these two groups of migrants was striking for me. So when I returned to Germany, I entered a bachelor's program in Asian studies with focus on Japan and on sociology, and I went on a study exchange in Japan. In line with the probably typical migration story, I never really left Japan. So after finishing my BA in Germany, I returned to Japan. I completed my master's degree there, my PhD, and a postdoc at Waseda University in Tokyo. And this, um, yeah, is the story of a migrant who started studying Japanese studies and researching migration studies. Thank you for sharing that. That's really fascinating to hear about your own experience of travel and migration, sort of feeding your interest and your academic journey. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, so now I'd like to turn to asking you about your deeply fascinating new book that we're talking about today, uh, The EU Migrant Generation in Asia. So how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? Yes, thank you. Um, This question, again, I think relates very much to what I just mentioned, um, that I lived in Japan for quite a few years. And during that time, I frequently traveled to Singapore and other Asian metropoles. And in all these cities, I noticed that next to those Europeans one would know as tourists or those who live there as diplomats or as high-paying managers, there were actually a lot of young Europeans who lived in these cities who worked there full time. But there's nothing or there was nothing written at that time on these people. So this aroused my interest since there is no research. And I was wondering who were these people? Why had they come to their Asian cities? And what did their employment look like? And of course, also, would they stay? 
So these questions encouraged me to conduct a longitudinal qualitative study on this group of people. And what I found, and this is the first argument of the book, is that this is a search for middle-class distinction of a segment of the European millennial generation. At the time, they were about to enter the labor market in Europe, which was about the 2010s, early 2010s. Asia was on the rise, especially China, India, but also Southeast Asia as a booming and growing region. And it seemed to offer career and lifestyle opportunities that these Europeans imagined hard to find back home in Europe, which was ridden by economic and social crises in the 2010s. Secondly, the book also demonstrates that the time and life stage when these Europeans migrated has led to many of them staying in Asia long term. My longitudinal analysis foregrounds how the changing immigration policies and ongoing sociocultural diversification of Singapore and Tokyo lead to different outcomes in these Europeans' professional and social integration. As such, the book contrasts and compares Singapore and Tokyo as destinations for skilled migration as well as for early career migration, and demonstrates why Asian metropoles are attractive for people coming from Europe, European university graduates. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a very intriguing phenomenon. And we again, we'll probably talk a little in more detail about how, like, you know, in the past, people would be migrating from other parts of the world, maybe to the global north, like Europe or North America. But now you have cases of, as you mentioned, like after the 2008 recession and so on, other events happening in Europe that people from Europe are sort of pursuing their uh, professional aspirations in Asia. But then, of course, like the case of Japan and Singapore is a little um, complicated, as you discuss in your book, um, because they, it's sort of in Asia, but, um, you know, um, it's technically also part of the global north. So anyway, maybe we can talk about that, uh, those sorts of distinctions in a moment. Um, but, but before we dive further in the, into the book, I wanted to ask you a little more about your research. Um, and I think you've already mentioned this. Um, so where did you do your research um, and what methods did you apply to doing your work? Exactly. So I was based in Tokyo uh, throughout my graduate studies and afterwards. So this gave me easy access, as I can say, to the group of people that I studied. I was able to acquaintance quite a few people from different networks, which was also something I put a lot of value on to not stay within a very distinct group of people, but really access different kinds of communities and networks through um, different universities, but also leisure groups, um, through job hunting events that I attended. And so I was able to do a lot of qualitative interviews and follow up with the people several times over the years, but also to do a lot of ethnographic observations and participant observations. And the same goes, although, of course, uh, with a more limited time frame for Singapore, to which I was able thanks to two grants to travel on and off, back and forth from Tokyo, and where I spend an extended time, each time being affiliated to university, by this also being able to access some um, student groups. But then also, again, I co-lived um, and shared apartments with other migrants, partly from Asia, partly from Europe, who lived as young career people in the city. I went to a lot of networking events. And again, I was able to access different kinds of communities and groups, and I kept contact with them over time. So the book is built on a 
body of many, many, many hours of interviews, of course, and more hours of participant observation. But it is also based on this core group of 70 people in both cities who I followed more or less over a course of seven years. So I was able to talk to all of these 70 people several times, except two of them. And of course, social media helps there as well. So I was able to see what these people posted, how they shared and exchanged views, but also just to track, for example, via LinkedIn, how, when they had changed employers or even cities, something I'm talking about in the book. So this is a very qualitative study, but then given the time frame that I've been able to look at this phenomenon of early career migration, it actually helps to cover a whole life stage of these people. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think the book was really enriched by sort of the um, you keeping track of these people over a period of time and continuously keeping in contact with them and sort of, you know, narrating their life stories or sort of integrating that into the argument of your book. Um, so I really appreciated that. And I think readers um, who read your book might also enjoy that. Um, so, um, so now, we, now I'll, I'll sort of ask you uh, about the uh, uh, the, uh, the questions. I'll ask you questions um, going um, from through the chap through the introduction and through the chapters of the book. Um, so, in the introduction, you sort of discuss, um, as you just mentioned, like these young people who are pursuing their professional aspirations in Asia's dynamic and global cities, like Tokyo and Singapore. You will continue discussing this in chapter one. Um, and um, as I mentioned earlier, like um, th this is sort of a change from um, other form from migrations in the in the more recent past. Um, so could you tell us more about the EU generation and this unique phenomenon of professional migrations by young Europeans to Asia? Uh, what are some of their backgrounds and motivations? Yes, thank you very much. You really um, brought to the fore, I guess, what this is about. It is kind of a reversal maybe or at least a very different um, take on migration as it is usually portrayed by media but also by scholarship and as you probably also said before you could argue these two cities being very advanced cities high-wage countries um, so of course you could call them to be the global north but in order to better understand um, what this kind of migration phenomenon is about and what these, the background of these people are, it is quite important to look at the EU generation, as I call them, at the very specific setup and the very specific um, setting of their growing up in the enlarging EU of the 2000s. So these people, they became adults around the 2000s. Um, they're usually called or subsumed among the millennial generation. But even within that, they're a quite distinct group. So these people, they grew up in middle-class households, very broadly defined, which means that mostly their parents were highly educated um, they were not affluent, but still had a, a well enough um, living standard to afford their children to go to higher education, to have hobbies and to travel once or twice a year. And they also encouraged their children to engage in, for example, language studies, um, to do some language exchange or maybe an internship. And, and this really formed um, these people's ideas of what, what it was, what they wanted in life. And what is important here is about the EU, as I just said, the territory of the EU, 
growing over the years. So there was an accession of new member countries throughout the 2010s. And uh, as we know, uh, reached up to two, two, uh, 28 um, member countries at some point of time. And this means that within this EU territory, there was the freedom of movement. That mm-hmm. meant people did not need a visa um, in order to stay or to work in any of the member countries. And this is the setting within these people grew up. They grew up um, seeing their peers and maybe um, all the siblings to go abroad, to do an internship, to do an exchange program. And this became also institutionalized within the EU um, around the Erasmus program, which is quite well known. Mm-hmm. So these people started from an early age on in their youth, um, maybe during high school, definitely during university, to expand and increase their mobility, their geographical mobility, first just by traveling, but later and often by doing, for example, an exchange program or by um, doing an internship abroad. So these people, very few of them, just moved to Asia without any previous mobility experience. They had slowly but steadily kind of increased um, the distance of their travels and the time period in terms of length of their stays abroad and lived with this idea that mobility was celebrated in the EU. Also this idea that having been abroad, speaking several languages was something that was almost a must that could be helpful for one's career, that could enrich oneself, one's personality and one's future. So this is kind of the setup um, within which um, these young people at some point seized opportunities, which they saw in Asia. And here again, um, the time at which this happened, at which which this generation or a segment of uh, the European millennial generation grew up is crucial. So this was a time that um, Asia was suddenly uh, everywhere in the media, but also in a geopolitical terms, in economic terms, it was on the rise. It was something we've spoken about uh, with glittering cities. Whereas in the EU, after Lehman shock, first of all, labor markets became increasingly difficult to enter, especially for young people. And mm-hmm. there are lots of statistics that I also show in my book um, that these even these highly educated people often had troubles to find full-time employment. And this EU that became more under pressure also with the refugee crisis in 2015 and more in general with the with the unfolding Brexit discussions and so on seemed just less interesting, also less um, fruitful in terms of a future career for these people. Whereas on the other hand, Asia somehow seemed to lure there as an exciting and as a promising destination. And and this is then where I discuss in the book uh, four different types of people um, who decide to move to Singapore or Tokyo, respectively. And these four types, I call them the lifestyle seekers, the cultural enthusiasts, the global professionals, and the precarious movers. So for the first type, the so-called lifestyle seekers, These were the people who had worked maybe for a few years in their home countries or in a different European country, and at some point said they wanted something different in their lives. They saw around themselves, their peers, how they had entered stable jobs, they founded families, they built houses. 
but they wanted something different. They wanted something more exposure to something they didn't know. And Europe, for many of them, felt like their home country, like a larger kind of mm-hmm. home country where there were no borders. So to experience something different, to be different, meant to move somewhere else, but somewhere where they could actually find jobs and where they could work. And so Singapore is for the so-called lifestyle seekers the destination to be. It's an it's a country with several official languages, but the business language is English. It has a lot of European institutions and organizations, and people were able to find jobs and to move there for a certain time being. It was quite unclear how long they would stay. As a contrast, then, the next type of the cultural enthusiasts, as I call them, is a very distinct group of those who were attracted, culturally attracted to Japan. And for them, it was not about the career per se, but it was about a way to stay long term in the country that they admired for several reasons. And so they tried to find jobs um, in order to get a visa that allowed them to stay. These people usually moved at a certain younger age, maybe even during university as an exchange program or uh, as an exchange student or even a full time uh, degree seeking student. They learned that without a Japanese language, they would not be able to find work and to stay in Japan. So they really invested a lot of time and efforts into studying the language and into really transitioning from university directly into the Japanese labor market and get jobs. And for the third type, the so-called global professionals, this is a very, very diverse group. A lot of young women, for example, who moved alone, but also people with a migrant background in Europe. Um, gay people. So a lot of people who felt for various reasons that both in a professional sense, but also in terms of the the kind of life they uh, are aspiring, they would not get it in Europe. And just the more international um, scene um, of different people um, that they could see both in Tokyo and Singapore made them trying the move um, mostly for a career, but also for lifestyle reasons um, to one of these two Asian cities where they felt there would be more cosmopolitan, as they, as they termed it, and more um, international exposure to interesting careers and people that would offer them more than what they could find um, in Europe. And importantly, they also felt that this is, especially Singapore as an immigrant country, a more open place actually for them. And the last type, um, the last type in terms of the motivations to move is a smaller group, but an important one. And again, this is related to Europe at that time. These are the ones I call the precarious movers, um, maybe a tenth of those in my uh, sample who came mostly from Southern or Eastern European countries at the fringes of the continent, where there was huge unemployment of young people after Lehman shock and uh, during the economic crisis. These people could not find jobs or just uh, underemployment in Europe. Um, And they often moved just by buying an air ticket and not having any visa, coming in uh, as a tourist and just trying to find a job. And this is what they did. They found jobs in mostly Singapore, less often in Japan, where because of the language it is more difficult, and they stayed. Thank you. Um, I mean, that's really fascinating. And thank you for sharing all of those details about the backgrounds and motivations of these migrants. And I can definitely see how, you know, this particular time period of the last 30, 40, 20, 30, 40 years when, um, you know, young people in Europe or in 
EU, in the EU, like they sort of took um, travel and migration for granted, and especially because of their class background, like, and but also just the fact that they also just had like visa free travel to all these countries, how that sort of um, helped them sort of imagine themselves living in um, different parts of the world. And of course, all the economic and social factors that sort of contributed to their migration, like that, that's all really um, fascinating to hear about. Um, so thank you. Um, so anyway, um, so you've already discussed a little bit about like the different kinds of migrants and why they might choose Singapore or Tokyo. Um, so in chapter two, you f- you focus your attention more on Singapore. So could you tell us about Singapore as an island metropolis in Southeast Asia and as a destination for migrants of the EU generation? Yes, thank you. This is a very important, I think, point to elaborate a little bit on because Singapore is, its as you just said, it's a small island state in the middle of Southeast Asia. And it's a very young country. It's barely a bit more than 50 years old and started out as a, a country with a colonial history colonized by um, the British Empire before um, with no natural resources with almost nothing at the time, just human resources. And this is what the country invested in. So we have an immigrant country there, a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual population. And from the beginning onwards, immigration was kind of the the keystone uh, and the fundament uh, for this um, island nation to to grow. And so they have welcomed um, immigrants over the years, and especially highly skilled immigrants have been offered quite good conditions to stay on so-called skilled visas, but also were offered permanent residence at some point in time that they had been in the country, and even citizenship, if they could uh, show um, what their contributions to the country were. So within this setup, um, Singapore is a hub in Southeast Asia and also for Asia Pacific. So there are a lot of multinational companies. There are a lot of European companies that are in trade with Asian companies. Um, And as I already mentioned, it's an English-speaking country. So it is very welcoming and seemed to be very open. It was often called the ideal migrant state. So that was attractive, of course, and a way to enter for uh, a lot of people. But also, and this um, becomes clearer over the course of the book, this kind of mood and openness to migration has been changing very recently. And um, the government has become much stricter on allowing in people, even on skilled visa, and especially on issuing them permanent residencies and so on. And we will see how this has then later on affected people in their considerations um, and rationales over staying or, or leaving Singapore. Thank you. Um, so in the next chapter, that is chapter three, you shift your focus to Tokyo, which has a very, very different history from um, Singapore in terms of migration and multiculturalism and even just general history. Um, so could you tell us more about Tokyo as a destination for migrants more generally and the EU generation in particular? Yes, absolutely. Um, as you just said, that's exactly the the setup. We have a country here with Japan and uh, Tokyo as its capital city that has never been seen by most people around the globe as an immigrant country. Japan had this 200 years of so-called limited engagement where there was very little um, contact to the outside world. And even after that, there was this myth that has 
stuck even until now that this is an ethnically homogeneous country with no immigrants. And of course, even nowadays, compared to other countries like Singapore that I talked about before, where a third of the population are actually foreigners, in in Japan, it is well under 2%, so very, very small. That being said, in the recent two decades, the immigration policies have changed a lot in the country, and the increase in foreigners and in migrants um, is quite um, significant. And within this setup, um, Tokyo still seems to, and this is how the people I talked to and I followed always described the city and the country, uh, the larger country, it seems to be full of a lot of contrast for people coming from Europe. It is this Asian country with its own language where it is hard to get by by English. It is. Um, it has a lot of long-established traditions and cultures that are fascinating for a lot of people who grew up uh, in very different surroundings. But then at the same time, Tokyo is a global city. It is also a hub for finance, but also for other industries with lots of multinational companies. And it is becoming more easy, especially in the past 10 years, to navigate with English. And this is something that helped um, a lot of people to set their foot into the country. So Japan also has changed quite a bit in the terms of what it not only offers, but also what it allows foreigners to do and what kind of jobs they're able to enter And part of this is also related to uh, demographic aging in Japan and the fact that uh, the country has experienced a long-term economic stagnation. So what is actually needed is people with lots of different skill sets and more in general, people. And this is something that we could actually see over uh, the course of um, the lives of these migrants, how they are unfolding in Tokyo. Thank you. Yeah, that's really interesting um, because, I mean, traditionally or conventionally, people did not think of uh, migrating to Japan or Tokyo, but actually in certain ways. And I think you mentioned this at, at, at one point in your book that actually in certain in, for certain kinds of migrants, actually, Japan actually has sort of liberalized its immigration laws that now it's possible for certain kinds of migrants to actually, you know, um, settle there much more easily than, say, in other parts of the world. So that's also like it's really interesting how sort of Japan is this it has this image of, you know, based on myth of like ethnic homogeneity, but at the same time, it's also this global, glo- it's, it's becoming, especially city, cities like Tokyo are becoming like these uh, global cities with people from uh, around the world. Um, so um, as you mentioned, like uh, mobility, uh, which is both geographical as well as organizational, like and since they move between different companies, um, as well as insecurity are both characteristics of European migrants in global Asia. Um, and you discuss these in relation to their experiences in Singapore and Tokyo in part two, that is um, in part two, it is chapters four and five of the book. Um, so could you tell us um, what you discuss about the EU migration, migrant generation in these chapters uh, in reference to these two like features of their life in Asia? Yes, thank you very much. So this is probably where there is a, quite a contrast between the two destinations of Singapore and Tokyo. And this contrast is related both to migration policy, but also to the way 
the employment system is working in both countries and uh, the labor markets that these young Europeans try to enter. So in both cases, of course, labor market integration is crucial for these migrants. As I already mentioned, without a stable job, they would not get a visa that allowed them to stay. And of course, um, for these people who are are highly educated and who have these um, aspirations to lead a middle-class lifestyle, a, a decent job is important for them. So... Some, as I outlined, focus more on career developments and other more on living in the country of their choice. Yet, in any case, they are dependent on the visa. And this is something where we can see that staying in a country, which I call immobility, so that means geographical immobility, staying in the same place, only becomes possible for most of them by doing or exercising organizational mobility. So what this means is these people don't stay in their jobs. They move around quite frequently in order to access better jobs or simply stable jobs or jobs where they feel that they are not outsiders. And I will explain this in a second, um, just in order to be able to stay in their country of choice. So... Let's start with Singapore. So the Singaporean labor market usually means that a job change um, leads to career advancement. And these people often work in European companies or even in Asian companies that want to do some trade with Europe. So here they can access certain jobs and positions that they would not find back in Europe. So in that sense, they experience quite rapid career advancement, at least in the beginning of their careers in Singapore. And this allows them to to stay on and to always renew their visa, which in Singapore are expiring quite quickly and which come with the pressure that actually people move up in the career ladder. Otherwise, they would not receive or get renewed their employment visa. In Japan, the labor market is very different. Uh, So Japan is built on an internal labor market system, which means that usually people would start right out from finishing school or university in one company and stay in that company for a long time, maybe even for a lifetime. While this so-called lifetime employment system is actually not very representative anymore, it has changed a lot, It is still the desired career for everyone because it guarantees young people, if they manage to enter a good company, they could be secure, they could plan their lives, they would not be fired probably, they can stay over long term in this company and concentrate on everything else also they want to. Um, So this means, however, that for people um, entering companies in Japan, they often struggle a lot in the beginning. They have to use Japanese mostly at the workplace. And they were often the only foreigners in their companies and sometimes felt to be the token foreigners. So they were the visible foreigners in the sense that maybe even if there were some other foreigners around, um, these were people from East Asia who had often stayed longer in the country, faced fewer struggles with the language, especially people from China who use the same um, characters uh, as an alphabet. Um, And so they often felt like 
put on the spot and mm -hmm. which made it hard for them to to actually feel part of of their their companies and um and of their teams so people did struggle a lot also with the long with the long overwork um that is typical in japanese companies and at some point they tried to change employer and so people move around a lot but also in order to be able to stay in Japan. As I said, they have invested a lot in the language. So for them also, like in Singapore, despite this very different uh, labor market setting, they exercise and um, develop their careers by jumping from company to company, which over time, however, allows them also to become more secure, to feel um, more at ease because they know that even in Japan with the difficult um, language and um, um, cultural um, components of doing business in Japan, over time they get used to it. They know better how to navigate the system. They know they will find a new job over time. So they don't struggle as much anymore. Thank you. That's really interesting to hear about um, sort of their experiences and the contrast in the experiences in Singapore and uh, Tokyo, as well as maybe some of the similarities um, in, in terms of their experiences, migrants in these places. Um, so in chapter six, you examine migrants' position and experiences in Singapore and Tokyo through the lens of the theory of intersectionality. Um, so how does this perspective or this theory sort of help us understand the experiences of EU migrant generations, quote unquote, otherness in Asia? I mean, you, you just mentioned about how some of these, um, you know, EU migrants in Japan, for example, sometimes feel on the spot. So anyway, um, yeah, please feel free to share what, um, what, what some thoughts about this. Yes, thank you. This is a very important point. So I dedicated the chapter to trying to analyze how the way these people are seen and they see themselves as foreign workers, foreigners in these countries, how this affects their labor market integration and also their satisfaction with the jobs. So intersectionality is used usually to see how different categories of difference, um, if they come together, how they affect people's positioning, maybe in a society or at a workplace. So what these categories of difference mean now in this case of young Europeans working in Singapore or in Tokyo is, for one, that they are foreigners. It means they don't have family in these countries. They don't have kin or networks from early childhood on in these countries. They live on visa. They're dependent on work visa. Um, which definitely sets them a lot apart from most of those uh, colleagues that surround them. Another category of difference then is that they come from Europe and also that they're visible. So they are mostly white people who kind of stick out, especially in Japan, but also to some extent, not so much though, in Singapore. But then the next factor that comes on top of that is that these are young people. And I said this in the beginning. So we know about um, expatriates, senior managers who are sent for a few years um, to their subsidiaries around the globe. And they are, among them are Europeans, for example, in Asia, or also di diplomats. But these people are early career migrants. 
they work on local contracts. They're not sent by any company. So they lack all the um, monetary benefits that, for example, expatriants get. Um, they don't have, as I just said, a family in this country, so they really build everything from scratch. And they're also not senior in the sense that seniority also accrues status, especially in Japan, but also in Singapore. So in many ways, these people do not really fit the image of a European as mm. their um, as the local citizens would see them. So in many accounts, um, people did not really understand um, or thought that these young Europeans would probably be expatriates, that they would get huge salaries or um, would, be, would, would return to their home countries in a few years. But this was not the case. So the case was that these people were in many ways enjoyed some privileges that critical mm -hmm. migration and critical race studies have written about um, in the terms that their symbolic Europeanness um, mattered. They were seen as people coming from Europe that has good universities, um, as people thought in, in Singapore and in Japan. Sometimes their whiteness seemed to signal that they were kind of cosmopolitan, that they were well-educated. So these kind of expectations in some positive way um, could have led to privileges that the young Europeans probably could have enjoyed and that actually some of them did enjoy in their private life. However, at the company level, um, it led to a lot of skepticism. Um, so these young people experienced that, that their surroundings were not quite sure what, what they wanted, and, but in, in general, that people did not consider them as being part as being part of a team or a company or the country because everyone thought they would return. So the question, when do you go back? When do you return to your country? Is a striking one that always occurs and always um, comes um, um, up front. And it led to a lot of insecurity, but also um, here we see, and this is another category of difference, as I call it, the one of gender, it led to different outcomes uh, mm -hmm. in terms of, of gender. And the, the interesting part is that, especially in Singapore, a lot of European women spoke very positively about their perceived career opportunities in Singapore because they felt less judged as a woman in business in Singapore, as long as they brought with them a lot of skills, as long as they had the hard skills needed for the job. In Japan, and this is the country is known for statistics of being ranking very low on the gender equality, um, people were a lot more skeptical, especially women, of their chances to, um, to succeed or to develop their skills in a quite Japanese labor market where there were a few foreigners, where there was a certain glass ceiling for someone who is not a native speaker of Japanese, um, but especially for women where they felt um, they were surrounded by male um, colleagues and especially um, seniors, male seniors only. Um, and this became then over the course of time and when people matured and founded their families, the whole career development issue became much more of a problem for women because in both countries, they understood that there was 
no way for someone who could not rely on, for example, family to help them. Um, there was just no flexibility in the employment system and in terms of careers that they could, for example, work flexible hours or just not go on business trips just because they had children. So in that sense, um, bringing together all these different categories show that even though, for example, in critical race studies, whiteness itself is usually seen as something that privileges people a lot, or in some other sense that foreigners and being on a, on a visa um, yeah, contributes to people's insecurity. If we put these different categories together, we could see how these people struggled and felt insecure, but also, of course, how some opportunities opened up for them. And here I mentioned before just the way that, for example, their language skills and the perceived um, knowledge of, of Europe and European institutions sometimes help them to access jobs where they would kind of be the bridge between a Asian and a European company. Thank you. This is really in interesting um, because I think uh, you, using this concept of um, uh, using this concept of intersectionality, like you, you can you sort of nuance the experiences of these European migrants in um, Asia, because, um, you know, I mean, on the one hand, as you mentioned, like they have like this white privilege or whatever, um, you know, and this symbolic, um, you know, there's, 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 there's some, some degree of symbolism to them being Europeans in Asia, but at the same time, as you mentioned, like they're young people who are sort of struggling to sort of craft their careers in these foreign countries. Um, so, so, so that, that's really interesting. Um, so um, in chapter seven, um, you discuss how these European migrants in Asia form a community and social networks in Singapore and Tokyo. Could you tell us more about this? Um, and further, what makes migrants stay in these cities despite the various challenges that they face? Thank you for this question. And this, I guess, is then the counterpart to the earlier part I was talking about and um, to the labor market integration, because how can we understand this migration phenomenon if we only look at work and at, at people's labor market integration? There is the tremendously important part, of course, of their social lives in these cities and the way they socialize, the, the networks they form also contribute to their long-term staying or moving decisions. So... In Singapore, what I could find, and this is, of course, related to Singapore being such a multicultural hub and a migrant city, um, is the fact that they these Europeans socialize in highly international networks. So there are, Europe, um, there are Singaporean citizens in their friendship networks, but the bulk of people are those with similar mobility experiences as, they them, as themselves. So these are not necessarily only Europeans or only people from other kind of Western, like US or Australian countries. But um, these are, and this is where um, the theoretical lens of the class becomes important. Mm -hmm. And these are classed um, communities. So while they might be highly diverse in terms of ethnicity and in terms of nationality, um, their friendships, but also their larger um, networks are middle-class professional people with professional jobs who have to a certain extent or to a larger extent experienced 
mobility themselves, who are migrants or who have been abroad and who want to socialize, who see a lot of value in socializing with these kinds of international networks. And this at the same time makes it difficult for those in Singapore to feel that they actually get a more deeper access or actually to, to kind of um, grow some roots in the country because most of the networks are transient ones. Um, people are coming and leaving. So this is the, there's this kind of longing um, that some having stayed for a certain time would like to stay longer but feel that in the end um, they're part of this transient migrant group. And this is also, of course, where um, the, the group contrasts to, that, to those in Tokyo. So in Tokyo, um, there are fewer foreigners. And those foreigners, like those um, Europeans, they stick out more. So the Europeans in Tokyo, they're socially basically in two quite separate groups. One of them is their Japanese networks. Um, where they communicate in the Japanese language and where most of their friends would not have been abroad for longer. Um, and this is very important for these Europeans. As I mentioned earlier, they have often invested lots of time and efforts into studying the language and they wanted to stay longer in the country. For, so for them, it's important to have deeper networks with uh, with local citizens. And still, at some point, they, they, they feel that they are often encountering these questions of when they would return. And this idea that still in Japan, it is just not seen as something common or obvious to stay longer, especially if one, if one comes from such a far country as one in, in Europe. And the other group they socialize with are then, again, the ones that, that they feel very close to in terms of their experience. So other migrants. And here it is often co-ethnic, so people from their own home countries or other European countries who they feel understand their own um, experiences better. So what this leads to in the end is that in both cases, people feel they cannot kind of get as deep into their receiving societies um, as they would mm -hmm. like to. Um, but still, and this is probably the, the striking point, still many of them stay. And I guess here is the time to, to tell you also that after those seven years that I followed these people, more than half of them have still stayed on. So more than half of them are still in the city in which I met them first. And among nice. those who have not stayed, they have moved on, but only few have actually returned to their home countries. So why have they stayed, right? I guess this is um, one of the most intriguing questions to look into. And the, 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 one of the reasons, and the one that really applies to almost everyone, is that they have spent a certain period of a very important time in their lives. Early adulthood, um, early career, usually their first position or employment ever, um, but also the time where a lot of crucial networks are built and often the time where they found their partners and romantic relationships. This time they have spent in Tokyo and Singapore. Um, this is a formative time where they also started to work themselves into, into their jobs and into those teams and into those networks that I've just talked about. And they lack the same in their own home countries. They don't have these. They don't have the work experience. They don't have the networks mm -hmm. back in their home countries. 
So just thinking about uprooting themselves again and starting again from zero is one point. And the next one is probably um, the fact that back in Europe, they know they would be like everyone around them. And this, again, brings us back to the point of distinction, something both in terms of the jobs they can access, but also in terms of what they have in terms of social life and the networks they have built and the people they meet. It just, Singapore and Tokyo just offers them something they think they can't find in Europe. And so in the end, uh, the also anxiety or insecurity of uprooting themselves again and starting all over again is one of the points that explains why they've stayed. The next point, and I guess you will probably ask about that, um, there is one more important point, and that is intimacy and romantic relationships. Yes, that, that's a perfect segue to my next question about, um, uh, about um, which is something I think that you go, to go over in chapter eight, which is the final chapter of the book about how these young professionals navigate the um, challenges and complexities of intimacy and romantic relationships. Um, so if you have anything further to add about how, what you discovered about the migrants' uh, lives um, in terms of um, you know, their relationships and intimacy, please um, Please uh, share. Yes, thank you. So this is exactly, yeah, the the kind of still missing point, I think, about the story. Um, That is really important and where also this long-term study design really made a difference. After two or three years, um, most of these people had still not settled as much, had often not found their long-term partners. But after four, five, six, seven years, this looked very different. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I spoke to this um, core group of interviewees first, they were between 25 and early 30s. But years later, you can imagine um, that's, a, that's a life stage. And so a lot have cha- has changed. And um, yeah, the crucial point was the way they had built relationships. And here I, I could see different patterns um, that really show us how much um, intimacy and romantic relationships affect the way people move or stay put. So one kind of pattern is those who are in a relationship or are married to someone of the same nationality. Um, so these people, they are together in either Singapore or Tokyo, but um, the, their return would probably, one would think, uh, mean a return to their home countries. However, this is not necessarily always the case. And I pictured some of the problems related to some of the European countries. Still, some are not economically doing as well. Um, and, and others just saw that their careers were evolving. But among this group, some have actually returned um, to their home country or more often um, to another European global city, if uh-huh. you would like to call it like that. For example, London, but then also maybe Amsterdam or Brussels, sometimes Berlin, places that seem to offer at least similar international networks and professional opportunities as the cities they have been working in. Then there is a second group uh, or pattern, and this is extremely interesting, but also very differentiated. And these are the ones who have either married a local citizen, a Singaporean or a Japanese, 
But then also these who are married to a third country national, as I call them. So, for example, someone from a different European country or from a different Asian country. And here it gets difficult because if these people returned, where would they return to? So for those, for example, who are from different European countries, it is extremely difficult in terms of how the economies at home are doing, but also the language that usually they do not speak each other's um, mother tongue. Um, the fact that uh, Great Britain, like that England is uh, not part of the European Union anymore and one would need a visa. So these are questions that actually keep people staying in their Asian destinations. Um, similar goes in a very different way, though, for those who are married to other Asians from a third country who then have their own families and kin close by and where usually the language that both partners speak would be the one that is spoken in the country of their living. So to, to put it um, in, an, in a clearer way, in Japan, most of the Europeans, they converse with their partner in Japanese. Mm -hmm. If it is a Japanese national, of course, in Japanese. But even if it is, let's say, uh, someone from a different Asian country, their language of conversation and communication would be Japanese. So for them, it's extremely difficult to imagine where else they should find work if they move together. So in the end, again, people more easily stay rather than moving on to somewhere else. Um, and yeah, as I just said it, um, if, if their partner is either from Singapore and from Japan, again, there is the language issue, there is the family close by, um, but there is also, for example, in Singapore, there are also other cultural or religious issues. For example, if, if they're married to a Muslim, um, Singapore as a multi-religious country seems to be much more open and accepting than most of the European countries. So again, people would rather stay or perhaps move within uh, the Asia-Pacific sphere to another global city where they feel they can both find jobs. And of course, there are some people who are not in a relationship, and um, these are the ones who I saw moving most frequently. And again, the 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 kind of kind of conclusion we can see here is that this is very gendered because. The ones who returned to Europe most often are single women who feel like if they in the future want children, then now it would be better to return to somewhere in Europe where they feel family is close by, um, they could get help and receive help from their parents maybe, um, and where social welfare systems uh, in terms of child raising and child care are more developed than uh, the Asian destinations. Thank you. I mean, I think you sort of elaborated the many layers of these um, Europeans' um, relationships and their lives um, in Asia. And actually, I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't think you've covered this in the book, but I'm actually curious as you were speaking about like, did you encounter any Europeans who were like LGBTQ and how they navigated maybe somewhat conservative social norms in in in, in Japan or Singapore? I, mean, I don't if you I don't know if you came across it, but I would be curious to um, hear if you had any any you had any such experience up there. Yes, thanks for this question. So I have to say I did not have many of them in my um, group or sample, but a few. And now this is perhaps contrary to what most people would think. Um, 
is the fact that they encounter their cities as extremely open. So just to give an example, someone coming from a rural place in a religious, quite conservative European country experienced Tokyo as much more open and accepting for gay people than his home country. Um, huge and lively LGBT communities. And although, of course, in some legal ways, maybe uh, Japan uh, might not be um, as far as some European countries, again, it is a lot about the city, the city of Tokyo, and interestingly for the same person also, the city of Singapore as a later um, uh, city of living and employment. Though Singapore is a country that does not even allow officially um, LGBTQ and, as, and would even penalize. Um, people say as long as you stay um, among the Reda, there is no problem and there is a lively community. So interestingly, in both cities, I find people who can um, who feel very free to, to live the way they want and even compare positively if contrasted to some European countries. Thank you. That's really fascinating. It's sort of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of maybe different from how people think that people might think that, oh, like Japan and Singapore is maybe some a little, uh, in, in I don't know if intolerant is the right word, but like they might not be as accepting as say, say a, a specific European country. But it's interesting that there's actually some layers to that and how someone from a conservative part of like a rural area in Europe who goes to Tokyo, for example, might actually experience openness um, to living um, according to their sexual orientation. So that's really fascinating. Um, so in the conclusion to the book, um, you reference the COVID-19 pandemic as the end point of your research um, and as a possible historical moment of significance um, for these EU migrants, perhaps similar to the 2008 financial crisis. Um, and you also re-emphasize how Tokyo and Singapore are these rather unique case studies uh, within Japan and Southeast Asia, respectively. So would you like to share any final thoughts about um, this, the, the moment we've lived in of the COVID pandemic um, and anything else related to what you've covered in the book so far? Sure. Thank you uh, for this question, because, of course, this is a very important one that I think we can't... Uh, move the clock backwards and the pandemic has happened. So what has happened to mobility, right? And to all this, so this celebrated mobility that these people internalized and uh, on which they built their lives. So the end of the time that I followed these people was during the pandemic and I was only able to talk to them or to exchange thoughts with them online. But this alone brought me to two interesting observations. One was that almost no one moved because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It is not that people returned, for example, because of the pandemic. But, and the first point maybe being related again to the difficulty of actually uprooting yourself once you have settled somewhere and found a place and a life and networks. But what is interesting is people have started to think very differently about where they want to be in their lives, who is important to them, and started to question this celebrated mobility. And this is also related to some of them, for example, not being able to see their families or even their partner 
for years because both countries were extremely strict. Japan and Singapore and didn't let in people for long term. Even permanent residents were for some time not allowed to leave the country and come back or were, ex for example, not sure if they would be able to come back. So this has really changed a lot of how people, and this is probably then beyond this study, how people in general, I think, uh, think about mobility and about where and how secure they should be in their lives. And again, here, visa issues, as I said, in, in the case of Singapore, are being seen much more critically now and people try, and this is probably another last implication of the pandemic, if they want to stay, they try everything to get a long-term permanent residence, a certain secure legal status. Yes, and this brings me, I think, to kind of concluding points of the book. Uh, you just said it. Um, so this migration and this book really is not about migration to Asia per se, but it is about Tokyo, um, not about Japan, but about Tokyo and what it offers. And it is about Singapore as a hub in Southeast Asia and as a hub in Asia Pacific. And what these two destinations offer, offer to people in, in terms of lifestyle, in terms of career, but also how much they have changed. And the pandemic probably was just a, a pinnacle um, that marked a huge change in Singapore that was used to be seen as the ideal immigrant country and over years has become much more difficult to access, but also to stay, which also leads to the fact that now after the, the end of my study, more people have left Singapore than those that have left Japan. And Japan is the country where you need to speak the language, which used to be seen as the ethnically homogeneous, non-welcoming, non-immigrant country. So the two countries have changed tremendously in their reception of migrants, of young people, of highly skilled people even. Um, and this probably has also been kind of cemented by the pandemic um, where more people even these days have been able in Japan to get a permanent residence permit, whereas in Singapore this is, has become almost impossible and leads also to how people think about um, where they want to stay and about their future lives. And yeah, the, the last point probably to just to, to sum up again is how important in this very distinct uh, migration phenomenon um, the life stage of these people was, and I hope I, I showed and demonstrated now how because of the time that they accessed and the location where they accessed their first employment, where Europe was in crisis, where Asia was on the rise, where they were able to enter jobs in Asia and then build their lives there and found their partners. And this really affected that many have stayed long term. And that especially those in international marriages, so with being married with someone of a different nationality than their own, are more likely to stay longer term in Asia than to return. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thank you for sharing that. Like, I mean, um, COVID-19 pandemic has been an inflection point for so many things in society. And so I can imagine it's also like an inflection point in the lives of these migrants. And, you know, it's sort of leading them to sort of think more deeply about various things about their lives. Um, so, so thank you, Helena, for taking so much time out of your busy schedule to talk with me today. Before we end, may I ask you what you are working on right now and what's next for you? 
Yes, thank you so much for all the questions and also um, about uh, the, the new project that has already started, actually. And where, again, I'm focusing on Tokyo and Singapore as a destination for migrants, but for a very different group of people. So this is a, a larger project um, together with four wonderful colleagues based at different universities in Germany. And the project is called Kwamafa, Qualification and Skills in the Migration Process of Foreign Workers in Asia. So within this project, we investigate East Asian countries, uh, Japan, Singapore, China, South Korea, as receiving countries of skilled migration and on the way they understand skills and qualifications in migrant trajectories. And within that, I'm specifically looking at foreign startup entrepreneurs, startup founders in Singapore and Tokyo, And I critically examine who is seen as someone who brings innovation that these countries want and why some people are labeled skilled and innovative and others are not. So please stay tuned on this and um, wait for, for more uh, outcomes on this new research project. Thank you, Helena. I look forward to following up uh, with your work uh, in the future. And I hope our listeners today, they, they read your book, um, but they also follow up with your future research. Um, so this was an interview with Dr. Helena Hoff about her new book, The EU Migrant Generation in Asia, Middle Class Aspirations in Asian Global Cities, which was published uh, by Bristol University Press uh, in 2022. Um, so thank you, Helena. Thank you so much, Arundhati, for today and for the questions.